Hello and welcome to the Senior Studio, hosted by me, Ben Jacobs of Senior's Capital. With this podcast, we aim to give listeners inside access to the best and brightest investors in the crypto asset management industry. In each episode, I will chat with a leading crypto and blockchain venture fund or hedge fund manager as we explore the complexities of operating an investment fund at the bleeding edge of innovation. In this episode, I sit down with Alan Cassis, founder and CEO of Luna Capital. Born and raised in Mexico City, Alan is a crypto OG and has been operating Luna since 2017 following early bets in Bitcoin and the Ethereum ICO. Now Alan operates a liquid and venture strategy that focuses on infrastructure and other pragmatic applications of blockchain and digital assets. Let's get into it. Ben Jacobs is a partner at Senius Capital Management. All views expressed by Ben and the guests of this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Senius Capital Management. Guests and the host may maintain positions in the assets and funds discussed in this podcast. You should not treat any opinion expressed by anyone on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of their personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of the Senior Studio. I'm your host, Ben Jacobs of Senius Capital. As you all know, we love to interview crypto's best and brightest, those that have been investing and and researching and spending time in the asset class and have found various ways to to generate alpha. And today's guest uh, is someone who I've gotten to know over the last few years who I, I would say is slightly under the radar, but his acumen and knowledge of the space and deals he's been able to execute on is, is best in class. So without further ado, I would love to introduce the audience to Alan Cassis of LVNA or Luna Capital. How's it going, Alan? Doing yeah. very well, Ben. Thank you for having me. I, I um, need to ask the I need to ask the question just because I, I I'm sure you get it. Have you thought of changing the name Luna Capital following the whole Doquan saga, or is the LVNA enough of a difference? Or are you sticking to it? Like, hey, we were there first. We've been around since forever. We want to keep it. I'm sticking with with the name. Uh, I I came up with the name during my honeymoon uh, and honeymoon or, or moon in Spanish is Luna. So I decided to, this was so important to me personally that if there is a bad actor that ruins the name, I, I, I don't really care. LVNA is something that I don't really like, but we'll see. I, I think the brand's going to catch on. That's I, I like I will call Luna. I, I love it and I love you. I love you sticking through it. So cool. Would love for you to introduce yourself to the audience. Where are you from? What'd you do prior to to working in crypto and launching Luna? Sure. Well, I grew up in, in Mexico City and my family was very I would say tech driven. My brother started building his own computer with buying parts and building his own computer when he was very, very young. Uh, we had one of the first dial-up modems in, in Mexico. And so I grew up with with technology. And my brother ended up going to Stanford to study electrical engineering. So when it was my time to apply to colleges, I had a lot of pressure 
But fortunately, I got into Columbia University. I studied applied math and economics there. That's when I found out that I was very interested in finance. And so I took a lot of classes in finance. And when I graduated, I, I went back to Mexico and was one of the first employees at what was Lazard in Mexico. And so during that time, I focused on debt restructuring, which was super interesting because you learn how to value companies, you learn how the capital structure of companies works really well. And so I learned a lot during that time. After a few years and a lot of very, very long nights and long weekends, I went, I decided to go back to the U.S. and get my MBA. So I went to Harvard Business School, and that was a great, great time. And then I graduated and went back to Mexico, and with the two of my ex-bosses, I started a multifamily office with about $500 million in, in assets under management. And in 2017, I decided to leave the firm and start Luna Capital. So were you paying attention to blockchain and digital assets when you were maybe studying finance or at HBS or start like launching the multifamily office? And then, because I know we have a good story I want to get to. I, I feel like you've, <laughs> you've been participating. So how did it all culminate to the launch of Luna quite early, like around the ICO boom? Yep. Yep. Uh, I, when I when I got to Harvard, there was this guy, crazy guy, that was talking to everyone about Bitcoin. Anyone who would listen, uh, he would talk about Bitcoin. And so that was in 2013. So out of the, all of the people, I was one of the few that actually listened. And so I went back, read the white paper, and thought this was super interesting. By the way, I had during my time at Columbia, just to pay for life in New York, I started to sell things on eBay. So I was very conscious of the issues of moving money around the internet. So I thought the, the Bitcoin was, was very interesting. That it was something that could solve that payments use case. Turns out I was probably wrong. That's not the great use case anyway, but I thought it was very interesting. So I bought my first Bitcoin in 2013, and that's when I when I got into the industry. I, then in 2014, in the summer of 2014, we invested uh, in the Ethereum ICO, and that was an interesting time as well. And most people don't know this, but I bought those Bitcoin on Coinbase. And the way you used to buy Bitcoin was you I gave my credit card. And I bought, let's say, five Bitcoin. And the the Bitcoin was delivered five business days after the transaction was accepted. So it was a crazy time. The As you may recall, or many people know, is the the way the, the Ethereum presale was structured is what was that as time went by, they would give less Ether per Bitcoin. So I actually got a loan in the in the time span that was when I was hoping to receive the Bitcoin from Coinbase to invest in the ICO. Yeah. It, was, it was an interesting time. That's insane. And 
there's rumors that you held that ETH ICO capital from the day you got it all the way up until what number? Well, I, I did hold for a really long time. It, one, there there was one issue that which is an interesting story, and also a lot of people probably don't remember this, but I also invested in the Dow. And so for people that don't know this, uh, the Dow was a huge uh, uh, deal on the Ethereum community uh, because it was a, at some point it raised, it was like a venture, a decentralized venture fund. And at some point it raised about $150 million. Uh, and in in the process of the launch, the, the Dow was hacked. And so the hacker drained about 3.6 million ETH, which is a crazy amount of ETH. Yeah. And, but I, I did hold through all of that period and I got my funds back due, due to the hard fork. Oh. So that was great. And, it, but I, I, I did hold until 2017. And basically what I did was that all the ether that I had left, I invested in to seed the fund. Amazing. So then walk, walk me through the, the kernel of insight. And so you'd been through the, the ups and downs of buying BTC, participating in the ETH ICO, investing in the Dow. As you were at the multifamily office, were you starting to get sentiment from larger allocators and families that they wanted active exposure and how were you thinking of constructing the firm who you brought on as part of the team such that you felt like you had an edge yeah uh, so to be very very candid uh, the way i thought about this was was a little bit differently less of an apart opportunistic way i guess I thought that it was it was a better use of my time to spend a hundred percent of of my time managing the wealth that I had built in the past few years than than staying and doing another uh, working on another job and and not just not focusing on on the industry and so. When I when I started thinking about what is the best way to manage uh, my all, all all of the wealth, I thought that it would it would make sense to do it through a fund that would uh, allow investors allow investors to come in. It, there wasn't at the time a lot of interest, uh, so the polychain had just come out. It was 2017. There were very few funds really metastable and a few others, but there wasn't really a lot of interest. And so basically what, what I decided is I want to do, I want to do this and I want to do just, if I'm the only investor, then that's fine. But I'm, I was pretty confident that, that the industry was going to continue growing. So, and, and why is that? Because uh, as we talked about uh, Transferring and storing value around the world without an, an intermediary was was great. Bitcoin is great, but in reality, there's a lot more than you can do with with the technology. So, 2016, 2017, there was the ICO, uh, and 
that's when I think the world started to realize that there's a lot more that you can do with with the blockchain, uh, and and that Ethereum kind of enabled that functionality. So there was the the Augur ICO, which was which was one of the first ICOs, and I invested in. There was DeFi Summer as well, and that's when we started to figure out that these things could be worth a lot more and had a lot have a lot more use cases. So, so I started. I, I called my brother, who had been working at Intel, designing the microprocessors we all use in our computers for a long time, and told him that I wanted to launch a fund. Then I also called the my friend who introduced me to Bitcoin while, while I was doing my MBA. He was he had his name is Daniel Fogel. He had launched. Uh, crypto exchange in Latin America, which is called Bitso, which is today the largest crypto exchange in Latin America. And so the three of us decided to to create Luna Capital. And in terms of designing the strategy, we generally, and, and we continue to think that, generally our, our idea is that blockchains are a very interesting technology, but it's it's difficult to use. Uh, the use case, the the user experience is not great, and there there's uh, a lot of room for error. There are a lot of risks, and so what we think is that there's a lot of infrastructure that still needs to be built in order for these things to really, really gain mass adoption. And so, so, and the way we think about this is if we think about a world that uses blockchains uh, for a lot of many for many many things and a lot of use cases we think that it's going to be very similar to the way we use uh, Instagram or the way we use uh, an, an operating system of a, of a computer we don't really know what's happening on the back end we don't know even what language, it, it, programming language it uses, but we know it works. And so for us to reach that point, I think it's going to take a lot more time. So we kind of subscribe to the fat thesis pro- uh, theory. And I think, I think there is a high likelihood that there's going to be an application that's going to capture a lot of value. But our thesis is finding that application is going to be a lot more difficult than investing it in the infrastructure that can, in a way, be, be like an index of everything that's being built on top of, of that infrastructure. And so that's how we came up with the idea. And I could tell, I could talk a little bit more about how we constructed the fund, which is something that doesn't happen today. So, so when we started the fund, we said we have limited amount of capital, but there, but there are opportunities both on the liquid side and on the private illiquid venture side. So what we did, and I think that that's how many funds do, did that at the time, we created a single fund that had both strategies and we we invested through to into the liquids through side pockets. Yeah. 
which is something that doesn't happen a lot. Anymore. Yeah, I I feel like the early polychain funds, you guys, Pantera, you know, it makes sense because like liquid tokens were effectively just like public equities for startups, for decentralized startups. And so it made sense for different venture staged protocols or companies to be commingled into one vehicle, just some inside pockets. But now we've actually seen an evolution as more traditional allocators are entering the space. It's cumbersome to deal with all those side pockets. Redemptions are complicated when you have an open-ended vehicle. So there's there's been a movement to bifurcating the liquid strategy and the venture strategy. And at least from my vantage point and speaking with a, a number of allocators, I think there's a lot of appetite from LPs for the venture side, but the hedge fund side, just the, the volatility of liquid tokens makes it tough to stomach for those with significant amounts of capital to deploy as they're not really in wealth generation mode. They're more so in capital preservation mode. So I'm sure I'd be curious to hear from you, like how it's gone in terms of like the capital base and the interest you've seen in your different vehicles. Yeah. I, I think we're generally, first of all, I would say that we're very different versus most of the funds, especially in the U.S., our investors are mainly single family offices and high net worth individuals versus the large funds in the U.S. that have more institutional capital endowments, those types of investors. Initially, there was a lot of interest for the liquid strategy. And I, I think it, given, the, given our strategy, I think there's still interest. But initially, it was a lot more difficult to get exposure to the liquid digital assets uh, than than it is today. Uh, even just custody solutions in the past, there was a lot of risk. Today, you have ETFs, you have a number of liquid funds, etc. And so, I think it's there is there is there's still interest because of the way we construct our our portfolio. Uh, we have things that and that someone that just spent a part-time research in crypto won't have and just sometimes those tokens are just difficult to acquire but there is less interest just given how the the industry has evolved and we're get we're getting a lot of interest for venture opportunities where the venture fund because we because those are unique opportunities that we have exposure to and can gain, gain access to, and so that's alpha for for the for the limited partners. I wanted to talk about one of your biggest investments. That I don't know. I think you made it when you had the full hybrid structure, which is Avalanche, and okay. Avalanche. You know, most people probably know it by name. One of the biggest L1s kind of was of the same vintage Solana, but pursued a a slightly different design and therefore appeals to a different type of user and demographic. So I'd be curious to hear the story 
from you of Avalanche and what makes it special and where is it going and who it appeals to? Mm -hmm. So we've made to date two investments in Avalanche. And the, the, when we, when we started or our first investment came after we, we read team rockets white paper in 2018, we understood that the way this consensus mechanism worked was really interesting and it could be a game changer in 2019 i i saw a demo of i mean Gunsir, uh, just showing the performance of the of the consensus mechanism and i was blown away by the results so we followed the 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 team for a long time since 2018 and in 2020 we got the opportunity to invest in the i guess it was second round at 50 cents and by the way I, I think the team did a really good job in allowing other other investors the public i guess to to participate in that round and so i think they built a really interesting community that way and, and so, so our, our thesis it was that it, the first thing is that the team was fantastic Gone had uh, introduced a, a peer-to-peer currency system in, 23, in 2003, which was five years before the Satoshi white paper. So the, this was a professor with a lot of distributed systems experience. And so he had been involved even in the DAO and in Bitcoin. And so he, he knew what he was doing or he knows what he's doing. And, and he was supported by a very, very good team. And I think that the way they are growing or, or they built the protocol is is quite interesting. The, they, they have these things called subnets, which could be, which are basically customizable blockchain. So you can build your own blockchain based on your specific needs. And that is something that I that I find really interesting uh, because you can build a permissioned uh, network. Uh, you can use the EVM or you can use something else. You can select which which validators can can validate that network. And so what it allows is a lot of a lot of experimentation. And so I think. We're seeing it with some of the large institutional players starting to test the Avalanche network in, in a way that it's not necessarily possible in something like Ethereum or other or other networks. So one interesting use case is Onyx, which is something that JP Morgan and Apollo Global are doing. And basically what they're doing is they're automating portfolio management so they can you can include alternative assets alongside liquid assets and, and so they're testing it in on a, on a subnet that that could be permission uh, you can also build something like that looks like a, the New York Stock Exchange but the only validators are the the broker dealers of, of the world and they're also do, working with city and they're testing pricing and execution of bilateral spot effects traits and so they're I, I think that that 
trend is going to continue. There are a lot of subnets being built. There's gaming subnets, there's DeFi subnets, there's, you know, private, all these private permission subnets. And, and also the team is building a lot of interesting technologies, like how do these subnets communicate with each other? And so eventually what I think we're going to see is we're going to see many, many subnets coming out and it's going to be like a network of, of subnets. And that could be super exciting. Yeah. One thing I've noticed about Avalanche is just how well they have done in terms of attracting larger institutions to tinker and build experiments, leveraging Avalanche's subnet infrastructure. It yep. rhymes definitely with Cosmos and the Cosmos yep. hub and seeing all these app chains spin up that are borrowing security and, and validators and SDKs from like overall the Cosmos ecosystem. But you can optimize your specific chain based on your needs. Do you yeah. view those as as running parallel visions? Like what were what are maybe some distinct design decisions from Avalanche versus like a Cosmos? I, I think I'm I'm not an expert on Cosmos, uh, but I, I do think that the way uh, the way the Avalanche token is used to secure the the network is is interesting. Uh, it feels to it feels like Cosmos is going more of a, I would say like a permissionless approach, in such a way that there's the Cosmos SDK and anyone can use those tools to build their own their own chain. I feel that it's a little bit different with Avalanche that you have a very strong business development team that's actually helping the, all, of the, all of the applications being built or the, this new network so something that's being built. And so, and I do have a story. We started working a few years ago with a Mexican publicly traded company that wanted to create a subnet to for a specific purpose or use case and they thought that the avalanche that avalanche was great because they would get get a lot of support from the avalanche team they would basically they would tell them what they would need and the avalanche team would help them design it so for the company they would basically only need to integrate that network to their own you know, centralized system. And so I think that the type of business development is key. And I, I think it's going to be very fruitful. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think there's two sides to those within crypto. There's the rebellious libertarian cohort that I've deserves the credit of really launching the industry into what it is today. However, there's also this pragmatic cohort of people who realize that these traditional institutions, they possess a, a lot of wealth and influence and integrating them into this new blockchain-oriented world is 
not only important for its longevity and TAM, but it also could be additive for, for everyone involved. And so I, I think you it's a good juxtaposition of Cosmos' more permissionless approach and, and more hands-off and a more high-touch traditional experience v- via AVAX. So thank you, thank you for that overview. Yeah. Yep. And and just and just to just to just to complement a little bit more, there there is there is something to say uh, about the, just the sheer size of all the traditional players, right? And we're seeing it in, on on the price of Bitcoin. Uh, the price of Bitcoin wouldn't be where it is if it wasn't for for all the CTFs and just the just the amount of flows that are coming into the industry. And so I do think that it that permission is permissionlessness is is very important, but I also see see and think that there is a lot of value of bringing in these large players, and and just and just helping them use these networks. I don't think I don't think the industry is going to naturally uh, become a key piece of the internet's infrastructure if we don't allow all these or facilitate the the these players, the large multinational companies, the large banks, everyone to participate in this industry. And I know this may be a controversial take, but I but I do uh, I think we're pragmatic. We're pragmatic investors and we're pragmatic in the way we view the world. Yeah. I wholeheartedly agree. I actually think it liaises into the next topic, which you kind of hit on is managing a liquid book at this point in the market amid the inflows to the Bitcoin spot ETF. The the way I always hear and am now referencing myself is we're kind of feels like there's two phases to a bull market. There's phase one, which is Bitcoin led and phase two, which is kind of alt season as it's colloquially called. Um, curious whether that dynamic and the four year cycles are still relevant in a post ETF world and how you're positioning the liquid book amid the macro backdrop and all that's happening in, in the crypto micro. Sure. Uh, we we started increasing our, our allocation to Bitcoin when the ETF last year, early last year, uh, when the when talks of the ETF started uh, becoming more mainstream. Uh, so, and, and as we saw that Bitcoin was going to start to recover, I think that Bitcoin is still going to lead, and so as it led in twenty twenty three. The now that the that the ETFs have been approved, what we're what we're going through right now is we're doing a heavy rebalancing process of our liquid book, and so we're starting to sell uh, a bunch of the top assets that we hold in our, and we're starting to increase allocation in other smaller protocols in anticipation to the bull market. And to us, it's just a function of risk versus return. And so let's say 
if if the four year cycles continue uh, in the future, I think uh, we're gonna. That means we're gonna see a bull market for during the rest of the year. And we're gonna see a bull market in 2025, uh, and that would lead, of course, depending on multiple factors, but that could lead to price of Bitcoin above 140, 150,000, right? And so, and so that divided by the 50,000 where it's trading right now, it's a 3x. I think that there are a lot of very interesting projects that are, that have been proven and that are safe, and, I mean, secure, and that could capture a lot more value if Bitcoin does what what I just said. So so that's why we are reallocating. I think I think once the having passes and then we have uh, a, the new narrative is going to become the e, the ETF. And so that's that's I think that's going to spark a new alt season, I guess. Yeah. What, I, what I've seen just from talking with a, a number of hedge fund managers and, and how they're managing the book, there was, you know, everyone buying into the, the ETF. Then the ETF happened. It was a bit of a sell the news event. And now as the flows are starting to really come in, BTC is rising. And now we're seeing ETH break 3K. And I think that's built off the fact of uh, the ETH ETF applications being submitted, as well as just, I think, Eigenlayer and just like L2 proliferation is is really driving, and, and EtherFi, which I know I want to touch on, really driving attention back to Ethereum. And so I see funds getting long ETH, and what I think is is tricky is knowing is it better to rotate out of BTC into ETH? Is it better to have big BTC and ETH positions and kind of forget about alts? Or does some diversified strategy where you have exposure to the big caps like Sol, BTC, and ETH, but then you also have allocations to longer tail high octane names that are higher risk but you know could outperform those big assets and i don't know what the the names of this cycle are i think like they could be a range of different trends and narratives uh, i'm curious are there any longer tail assets or, or narratives that you're kind of zeroing in on and either i built a position in or are evaluating yeah and so uh, we we can talk about EtherFi, but I, but I think that the 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 data availability and AI are going to be the next the two most important narratives pro- probably in the next cycle. We build I think sizable position in BitTensor for for a while, yeah. and uh, that position is doing really well and. But and I and I do think that AI is going to be one of the key sectors or subsectors of our industry. I do see a lot of value on AI, 
And so, and we, when we started in this industry, or even when we've been talking to investors recently, there's something that what we used to say was, this is the fastest growing industry in history, even faster than the growth of the internet, right? The problem is that in the past few years, something else came up that was growing a lot faster, and that was AI. And so I do think that centralized AI is an issue. So I think that decentralized AI is natural, and it should happen and materialize. And so just the combination of the two fastest growing industries could be could probably be the key use case that we're waiting for. Yeah, I think as I speak with investors, AI is and blockchain, there's a natural synergy there in terms of decentralizing these omnipotent models and ensuring that some of that decision-making and those algorithms are democratized and visible and transparent. I think people complain about OpenAI's LLMs being totally closed off. So, and, you know, BitTensor and the Tau token is a project that has been, you know, playing on that model. So I'd be curious if you could just explain a little bit about how BitTensor functions and how the Tau token is a core component of that ecosystem. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Well, the, the first thing that, that I would, that I want to talk about, if you don't mind, is just how simple it is to explain how, how something or, or one subsector within the AI sector could be of a lot of value. And this has, has resonated a lot with our investors, which is, as most of us know, the well, the Bitcoin hash rate is is growing and it's at all-time highs. And, and it's basically the most powerful computer in the world, right? The most powerful network. But what it does, it's, it, it only iterate, it only iterates numbers. All of these computers are only iterating numbers. And that's not of a lot of value. If there is someone who can build a similar network of computers that act, they're actually running all of these models in a way that really adds value to society, that could be huge. That could be very significant, I think. And so, so that's one thing that that BitTensor is doing. BitTensor also has a concept of subnets. I guess they have thirty six subnets and each subnet what's doing is they are each one has its own like function and so there's one that that's doing what i just said there's one that's doing like a chat gpt application and there's one that's doing video and, and images and those types of things and so there's 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 a lot of things happening in BitTensor. And I'm hopeful, or I expect that the that the ecosystem is going to continue to grow. And therein lies some of the alpha of active managers, because from my understanding, Tau is quite a difficult token to 
purchase. I don't think it's available on Coinbase or on a DEX. It's its own L1, so it's a bit complicated. And that operational arbitrage is part of the alpha that that's readily available. Yeah. And and I do think it's a an easy narrative for investors in the the asset class to to hold on to as a way to get exposure to AI. There's like the deep in narrative, like Akash and Render and and those, and then there's Tau, mm-hmm. which rewards models based on you know whether people accept them as the highest quality one and therefore they earn tau well, yeah. one question that you know, it's not really a question but something i've been thinking about is miners bitcoin miners and similar to how you were saying with BitTensor and tau kind of repurposing like the the numerical math that's being done to to mine bitcoin to actually support models like in BitTensor. I'm curious whether you know, Bitcoin miners that are consolidating power now will also leverage their hardware infrastructure to also support data centers for AI and like the massive need for compute. Seems like a, a natural synergy and, and one that I haven't really spent any time on, but it it, it makes sense in, in my eyes. I wanted to talk about EtherFi. Because everyone talks about Eigenlayer, but if you look at TVL of EtherFi and their adjacent projects, you know, what, what is going on there? Are people just farming airdrops? Is there real innovation here? What's going on that's attracting so much capital and interest? I'll tell you, I'll tell you how we found EtherFi. Uh, we held Ether. The ether that we hold, as as I said, is ether that we bought. Some of the members of the GP bought uh, during the ETH ICO, and so to us, those ETH are precious. And so when when proof of stake, when all the merge and proof of stake are activated on Ethereum, we were really excited, and now we can earn a yield on those ether. And but it, but it, I, I don't think, or we haven't really gotten comfortable with with the risk inherent in staking versus the reward that that we would get if we staked our ETH, uh, and and just risk of slashing and many other risks that are inherent in staking, and so we just held our ETH. And it took us a really long time to find something that we found interesting. And so when Eigenlayer came out, we thought, well, it's something that we could actually do to stake our ETH. And because it, it in a way, it just gives more utility to the ETH that you're staking, right? Because you're you're also securing ABSs and gets more value and you potentially can get it airdrops or you know have have more use or get a better use of your of your the ether and so when we were but however we didn't want to do it with the lsts because we think that there was a lot of risk there we also didn't want to contribute to lido getting more a larger share of the stake and so 
So we found EtherFi. And EtherFi, through EtherFi, you're basically staking directly. You would through the beacon chain. And so you're earning the, the ETH native staking rewards. But you're also uh, uh, restaking with Eigenlayer. And you're also getting uh, the points for EtherFi, which... So the combination of the three was the reason why we found it. When we when we started talking to the team late last year, they had about thirty thousand ETH staked, and today they have four hundred seventy five thousand. So like one point four billion staked. So and so we met with the team. We think we talked to to Mike and to Rock, and we thought they were outstanding managers. We. We spoke to some existing investors, and they all they speak highly of the team. They're a team that have built things in in Web two successfully, and so we thought that we that that was the horse that we should back. So we we also invested into EtherFi. So let me just make sure I understand it. So I have ETH, I go to EtherFi, and I stake my ETH there. I'm earning mm-hmm. yields, and then are they taking my staked ETH and then also restaking it on Eigenlayer? So I'm right. earning ETH yield and then potential yield from restaking that ETH on Eigenlayer, and I qualify for airdrops and points quotes from EtherFi and Eigenlayer maybe not the AVSs that are being supported. Maybe that's down the road or maybe that is the no, case. No, you also get, you, oh, God. you also get, the, you, we, we've also gotten airdrops from, let's say like alt layer. Got it. Uh, so it's really, because uh, it's natively uh, restaked. So they are one of the biggest stakers on Eigenlayer. So they're, they're yes. an operator that they determine which AVSs to support on Eigenlayer. Cool. And it's they don't take staked ETH and they don't take LSTs and use that to support Eigenlayer or restake that. They just use ETH, which is much safer. Correct. Correct. Okay. And then there's and then there there's the pendle. There's the pendle opportunity, which which is also interesting. What what's what's the pendle opportunity? <laughs> this is why this space is like people are like, oh god, and what this is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was talking to one of our limited partners, and he said, "What you're you're staking and restaking, and then you want to do stake again in pendle?" So yeah, it's, it's an interesting industry. But basically, in Pendle, you can you can separate the the yield from the principle. And so, what has happened is a lot of people have been and sorry, and the the yield earns the the rewards, the all the eigenlayer and and the and etherfight points. And but the principle doesn't. So a lot of people what have been doing is they've been buying the yield token in order to speculate that 
the value of the eigenlayer and ether pipe point is going to be much greater than than the than the investment that they're making, and it's become an interesting market because a lot of people as well have been taking the other side and saying, well. I'm willing to forego the points in exchange to getting a 25 or 20% yield on my ether. So they've effectively so, created a futures market for yeah. airdrop farming. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah, incredible. Very interesting. Yeah. And then it yeah. is, it does the, are those yield tokens? Is that like a Pendle token or is that like a, it'll be like, I, I don't know, what's the name of that token? And then that Pendle you can actually buy, which represents the token for the protocol. I don't know. It's a, it's a yield token related to EE, which is Ether phi E. Got it. And, but then there's also the Pendle uh, token. Got it. Okay. Woof. Ah, uh, that's good. That's good stuff. We only have a couple yeah. minutes left here, and I'd love to to totally abandon ETH for a second and talk about digital art and NFTs. So, you've spent some money, you know, investing in NFTs, buying actual art that's native to to blockchain. So, what's your thesis there? Do you do it? Know how to fund to diversify because you think it has good return potential. You know what is your book of NFTs kind of look? Yeah, uh, I do it on my own account, and I I do it because I I like art, and so I started buying art for the pleasure of it. Then I at some point uh, I made the mistake to think that there there could be some way to speculate in in the NFT market and that is that I I lost money making buying a ton of crap that isn't worth anything and, and the art isn't good but so I returned to the basics uh, and so I started to try to get more involved in the NFT space so more recently I've been taking a, an, an active role in supporting specific artists that, that I love and that I think are going to actually build a lot of value. For example, my wife and I, we supported an artist called Andres Weisinger. He did a public installation in Art Miami, which was super cool. And we, we love to do that. We also have been buying Rafik Ganador's work for a long time. We recently bought a, won an auction at Christie's of a, of a G-Monk, which is a piece that I absolutely love and that speaks a lot to me and my past and my wife and the moon <laughs> and uh, all, all of the things that are, that are important to me. And so, but, but I do think that NFTs are going to come back, especially all of these high quality uh, NFTs. Uh, there, there's one thing, and and I don't know if this the, the spicy take, uh, but I've been at, at some uh, for many many years. I thought that memes or or meme coins were 
just dumb things. And I'm starting to come to the realization that a lot of things are memes and even Bitcoin is a meme. I do think that the that there's going to be a lot of value coming from just building a very strong community of holders, whether it's uh, non-fungible or fungible token. And and just getting people excited about all of these uh, things. So, so yeah, that, that, I I think NFTs are going to be pretty big. And, and there's th- and there's also things that you can't that you can't do with traditional physical art that you can do with technology, such as what like borrow against it quite easily or earn yield on your your well, digital art. Well. That that I I think NFT Fi is interesting, but I'm talking about more in terms of the the art itself, like uh, doing videos and uh, manipulating those videos with data that could be, um, you know, in real time, changing those types of things. Yeah, I think there was an NFT project called Pool Suite, where they had a partnership with Ralph Lauren where you would uh, create your own character that you then minted as an NFT and it, it could have its own sunglasses, its own hat, its own skin tone, lips, whatever. And then as they develop partnerships with brands, you could purchase that specific you know, pair of sunglasses, let's call it from Ralph Lauren, and then be able to... Uh, and then be able to integrate it into your NFT, which I thought was was pretty cool. All right, Alan, you've you've been great. Loads of good insights and 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 very much have valued your perspective that has been long earned in this asset class. So, as you know, at Senior Studio, we love to end with spicy fuego contrarian takes <laughs> so what is your mas picante take within crypto well i think that uh, a lot of very large players have seen the just the success of the etfs and so i think that there's going to be very very large player that's gonna come in and and start building on top of one of the existing layer ones. And I don't have any insight at all. And Sound, sounded like an advice. alpha leak. Yeah, <laughs> this is not an alpha leak. I have no insight. But one of our general thesis when we invested into Mistin Labs and Sweet is that we thought it was very, very natural for Facebook or Meta now that the DM project had to be canceled, that it would make sense for them to use some network and that network would probably be one that's run by people have been for many, many years close to 
the meta team and leadership. So, so I, I think that at some point, uh, the, the SUI network is going to be used by one of the very, very large players and it could be meta or it could be someone else, but the, but someone is going to start building on top of one of these networks and one of the large players, because uh, I think just the announcement could generate a lot of value for shareholders, whether it's meta shareholders or any other company. Yeah. It seems as if the move, the move based languages are the ones that have the highest probability of attracting like a non-financial institution enterprise to build on its tech stack as opposed to, to avalanche looking like an, an early favorite for financial institutions to participate on chain so right it's cool and, it, and got... it's also scalable at the at the level that that you need it sweet sweet is i mean yeah because there's no there's processing of parallel transactions so something that sweet does really interestingly is it works like the real world and uh, I think that's super interesting. And by, what I mean by that is if I give you a dollar bill, no one needs to know. There, there's no need for anyone to gain or the network of the Federal Reserve to gain, to achieve consensus to uh, about that transaction. And so in a similar way, you can send independent transactions in the SWE network and they don't need to be validated by the entire network. So that could work really well for a company like Meta that's doing a lot of transactions between users and that could make a lot of sense. All right. We'll see. We'll see. I'm excited. It feels like SWE is kind of hitting its its watershed moment where it's recapturing. It, it had a lot, Mistin had a lot of attention when the deals first got announced and there was a big building period. And, you know, the, the early dollars seemed to flow to Aptos simply because they were like in market, I think, earlier and probably strong from a BD and, and branding perspective. But it seems as if SWE is catching up in terms of its ecosystem and developer mindshare. All right, flipping it outside of crypto. You can't talk to me about anything crypto related. What what is <laughs> your spiciest take? I don't know if it if this is a take. It's probably more of speculation. So this weekend, I'm I'm going on a trip to Saudi Arabia, and I've been learning a lot about the country. And it seems to me that in a very short period of time, just given the new leadership and just the effectiveness that it, uh, one individual can execute. I think it's the the country is going to have a leading global press presence, and uh, it could be summarized as why because just he who has the money has the power, and so just like a, a few facts that I've been seeing, which is which are mind-blowing. So Saudi Arabia sits on about 20% of the world's oil reserves, which are worth like $34 trillion. Uh, Saudi Aramco is the world's most profitable country, company in the world and has a market cap of $7.8 trillion. And to put that to perspective, 
$7.8 trillion. It's about a third of the US M2 money supply, $21 trillion. It's just the, the university cows has a $23 billion asset endowment. Which is comparable to some of the leading universities in in the U.S. So, I I think it could be a really interesting time for for the country, especially if it opens up a little bit and becomes a little bit less traditional. We'll see. I'll I'll report back when I come back from my trip. Yeah, let me know because I too very much hold that perspective based on. My time spent in Riyadh, I spent about two months in Riyadh and saw firsthand the Vision 2030 initiative and how they're very much looking to build out the economy to be far less reliant on oil and energy production and to build out tourism industry and entertainment. I think we'll see alcohol getting legalized at some point in the industry. Look no further. Spend some time and Google NEOM, N-E-O-M which is the massive infrastructure project that includes that massive line city that people have maybe seen, but it also has a full industrial city and a separate city that's more like tourism focused. So they're literally building cities in the desert. And then you can even see things like them acquiring the Da Vinci painting, the Salvador Mundi. For, I think it was like 150 million bucks or something or no, that's, Way well, like, like 150 billion, yeah, yeah, something insane. Four, I, yeah. I'm totally blanking on what it was, but now they're building a whole museum around this this Da Vinci, which is like one of the 15 total paintings that he he ever painted. So watch that documentary. I think it's called The Last Leonardo on on Netflix. It's incredible. So check it out. I'm I'm curious to hear about your trip there. If you like fried chicken, my favorite spot there was called Al Bake. So check it out. <laughs> all right, Alan. I you you hit on all my buzzwords there. I could talk about Saudi all day. Where can people follow along with you and Luna's journey? On Twitter at uh, Luna Capital, and my handle is at Alan Cassis. A L L A N C A S S I S. Amazing. Well, thank you, Alan. This was great. Really enjoyed our conversation and. For everyone who tuned in, thank you so much for for your attention and time. Hope you got as much value out of this episode as I did, and we'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of Senior Studio. Please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to podcasts if you love today's show. For more Senior's Capital content, check us out at seniorscapital.substack.com and shoot me a follow on Twitter at Benny P. Jacobs. We'll see you next time.